HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. there you're listening to another episode of let's eat in i'm your host kathy arway we're on heritage radio network here at roberta's um unfortunately i don't have the chance to eat in or eat out or whatever um with our today's guest but he is an exceptional exceptional food um justice advocate he's an exceptional chef let's see he's the co-author of grub um, and he's also the author of Vegan Soul Kitchen, and his newest book is called v- uh, The Inspired Vegan. His name is Brian Terry, and he's on the phone. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Kathy? I'm good. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me on. No, this is amazing. Um, it's, um, it's a shame. Um, I'll miss you for your book launch when you're in New York City, um, but I-, I know that you have tons of events coming up, um, which you- everyone should check out at bryantslashterry.com. Um, you'll, so, you'll have to come out to the West Coast and then come to one of my events in the uh, Bay Area. How about that? All right, all right. I can't wait. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Um, but I do have my hands on your book, which is amazing, and I'm. it's it's really inspiring. I mean, it's a very appropriate name. Um, you mentioned that the inspiration for this book was um, raising your first child. Is that correct? Yeah, well, actually, um, my wife was pregnant um, throughout the writing of the book, and I was doing the final edits <laughs> during the first seven weeks of my um, daughter's life last mm-hmm. year. And so it was um, interesting because the book was, I was pushing the deadline back, I don't know, several times, and I just wasn't feeling that inspired. But then when my wife and I found out we were pregnant, <laughs> I guess this idea that I used to always have, or, or at least this kind of legacy argument that I would present in my kind of food justice advocacy around creating a more healthy and just and sustainable food system for future generations, it became so much more concrete when I had this living being that I co-created who was going to be in the, in the world. And so I was like, you know, I am literally creating a better world for my daughter and her children should she choose to have them. So... You know, in terms of my desire to use the essential pleasures of the table, people's habits and attitudes and politics around food, I really felt like, you know, what a better place to um, kind of draw inspiration than this um, 
this beautiful daughter that is going to be um, living in this world. Oh, that's that's awesome. I mean, and you've done so much for for folks even before that revelation, but that's that's definitely really cool. Um, and you live in Oakland, California, and um, in your introduction, you mentioned that you know just over in West Oakland, you, you're currently in a food paradise. There's farmers markets, and I've gotten the chance to see them, and they are pretty amazing um, year round. It's just like fresh food from local farms. But over, you know, one neighborhood over in West Oakland, it's like a food desert. And this and this juxtaposition is what kind of drives a lot of your a lot of your work is trying to better those situations. Yeah, I mean, in some ways I have problems with this term food desert. Um, mm-hmm. I think it can be useful in identifying communities that have um, fewer resources. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about food desert, so much emphasis is placed on um, corporate-owned supermarkets. This is like, oh, this neighborhood doesn't have a supermarket. I think every community um, deserves a service uh, store where you can get staple items that, you know, if you want to buy. Sorry, we're losing you. Brian, you're there? I think, you know, we talk about food desert. In some ways, it naturalizes the problem, and it doesn't yeah. really give the historical process of in the late 60s and 70s, a lot of, you know, affluent white families moving to the suburbs and the white flight kind of like leaving these communities um, devoid of many of the resources that they formerly had. But the other thing is I realize when I go and I talk to people across the country that on the, a lot of the communities that are on the outside might appear to be a food desert, there are people who have been working and people who continue to do work to create um, local food systems, whether it's, you know, recently arrived, um, you know, Hmong immigrants who are growing their, um, you know, herbs and staple foods from, from their country, or if it's older African Americans who have roots in the South that are growing like, you know, food that they're familiar with, their cultural foods, mm-hmm. you know, people are actually um, doing things to contribute to local food systems. So I think for me, it's about kind of abandoning this model that I often see with community-based organizations or well-meaning altruistic individuals who want to help um, improve community food systems, understanding that it's not about going in and having this kind of old early 20th century social worker model where the more privileged, more yeah. smart person, the smarter person is coming in and telling mm-hmm. these people how to improve their food systems. But it's about partnering with people and communities and helping to direct resources and, and shift power so that people can actually drive and own the solutions to creating more healthy food systems in their communities. Because everybody wants to eat well. It's not like a choice, you know, you know, it's not like uh, you, that they prefer you know these these bad food choices it's it's definitely it takes a lot of effort it sounds like these individuals that are pioneering you know growing the their um cultural vegetables and so forth that's a lot of work to take on but it's yeah. worth it yeah yep. no and i think you're right it's just like you know nobody wants to be eating fast food and processed food every day. I mm-hmm. mean, there are certain economic um, circumstances that might make it more convenient and, and cheaper. You know, we know, you know, it isn't that much more difficult to um, eat a uh, kind of plant-based whole, wholesome diet if we do it in community with others. But, um, you know, hopefully eat well. They just need to 
have some resources, and you know, obviously a lot of people need to raise have their their food IQ raised so that they can be able to select healthy food. Void of helpful food for so long that folks just you know don't have a familiarity to just like partnering with people. I think. Are you getting a bunch of incoming calls because your phone is like sh- uh, um, kind of sh- uh, scattered right there? But um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. There's just some like flip sounds now and then. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so you know, um, I really, really appreciate all that work that you're you're doing. Um, to to kind of yeah propel these movements the you know these um small movements that are really making a big difference um so you know going back to this book though um you you your um previous book before this was all about soul food um vegan style and it was amazing to see how you translated these classic soul dishes using vegan techniques which is not quite you know the most intuitive thing one would think um what was your uh so inspired vegan is even more recipes not necessarily soul related but um all vegan and i love how they're organized um by season and then with a soundtrack a suggested soundtrack and suggested books for reading it was a kind of it's really fun and personally have a lot of anecdotes throughout it um, what would you say about the um, the range of recipes in this book, <clears throat> as opposed to the last one? Is it kind Whoa. of? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. It, it, is it kind of just like part? It seems like really fun, like something that I want to make for parties because, and then I get this soundtrack, and it just they all seem like crowd pleasers. Something you want to make for other people. Well, you know, I decided to structure uh, my latest book, The Inspired Vegan, around full menus for a couple reasons. One, so many people who have a kind of meat-centered diet and who are interested in eating more plant-based foods, whether it's having meatless Mondays or one meal per day where they're not eating um, animal products, or if people have a full-on vegan diet, um, you know, a lot of novices feel like, I just don't know how to put together uh, a meal without meat because meat's at the center and I can work around that. Mm-hmm. So I felt like um, creating these full menus would be a good way to help educate readers about how to put together, um, you know, meals that are just well balanced in terms of in terms of textures and flavors and nutrients and micronutrients, and to show that you can have a vegan meal that's um, you know interesting and, and complex and sumptuous and, 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 you know, just, like, cool. So that was one of the reasons that I thought, um, you know, it'd be kind of a good educational tool. But I don't, you know, we don't eat in a void. Like, I think one thing about our industrial food system is that it's kind of put food on one side and created this huge chasm where art and community and culture are, like, way on the other side. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, part of my mission with the work that I do has been kind of bridging that gap. And, you know, most often on celebrations, on holidays, on the weekends, when people are eating, there's music, there's conversation, there's, you know, just like general kind of like connection. And Mm -hmm. so I really want my um, books to, in some way, you know, as much as they can through text, (laughs) Mm -hmm. mirror the type of um, 
relationship that I would like people to have around food in, in real life, you know, not only eating, but building community, cooking together, mm-hmm. connecting with people that we love, and then um, just, you know, enjoying really good food. Mm-hmm, but in be- terms of the um, recipes themselves, like you said, um, Vegan Soul Kitchen squarely focus on um, Afro-diasporic food. So a lot of food that was inspired by um, what people term soul food, you know, kind of like um, African-American cuisine, but more broadly Afro-diasporic cuisine because there are a lot of recipes that draw on, um, you know, staples and cooking techniques and, and distinctive dishes from the African continent and the Caribbean as well as American South. And with this book, I certainly wanted to have a lot of focus on those type of recipes as well because I want I, I, I want to normalize Afro-diasporic food as just helpful, wholesome, good food. I don't want it to be ghettoized in one book. You know, mm-hmm. I want... If people think about, I want to get some, you know, vegan, really good food or some plant-based food or whatever, they'll think about getting African cuisine or Afro-Korean cuisine or Southern cuisine just as quickly as they might think about getting, you know, I don't know, Japanese food. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but, you know, I expanded beyond Afro-Diasporic cuisine in this book because... It's just really um, a reflection of my life, and it, it, the, the new book certainly has this texture of autobiography. And my wife is Chinese American, and we have this daughter, and we certainly are trying to introduce, you know, make sure that she's kind of apprised of and in love with all of her cultural food food ways. So there are a lot of Asian inspired recipes in, in the book as well. So it's kind of interesting and diverse, but you know, certainly just rooted in good, just delicious food. Yeah. Yeah, I love the global range. It's it's very diverse. Um, you've got recipes for you know really brilliant substitutions here. There's a sog tofu. It's a you know typical uh, um, Punjabi Indian uh, dish with paneer usually, and then you use tofu instead, and it just makes so much sense. It's like why didn't I? Th- it's so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> So are you just like, I I find it a really fun, creative challenge to cook vegan or vegetarian um, when you don't expect it, I guess. Um, so, but you seem, it seems so natural. And I know you um, graduated from the uh, Natural Gourmet um, Institute. And um, in the beginning of the book, there's a lot of cool techniques about how to build flavor, like caramelized onions, uh, cream cashews, and these kind of fun tricks to use all uh, plant-based foods to, to build depth. Um, but d- does this like come naturally to you or is it just a, a lot of tinkering and a lot of eating <laughs> that is, that has led to to this big volume of recipes? I think a little bit of all that, but you know, the funny thing, Kathy, is that I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, like deep south, mm-hmm. and in Memphis, like the, the major staple is barbecue. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I grew up eating barbecue because I just, you know, had an omnivorous diet, and I think it's so interesting that, you know, having like those deep, complex, like really rich flavors from the food that I um, would often eat growing up, especially barbecue and, you know, just, I mean, a range of dishes, but, uh, you know, southern food definitely the way that it's seasoned and you know having gone to college in new orleans and just like the really kind of like deep complex rich flavors of cajun creole cooking i feel like all that influences my approach Mm -hmm. to vegan cooking and so you know for me i live and breathe this stuff as you know but i don't care how ethical how sustainable how helpful the food is if it isn't delicious i don't want it so i know that the average (laughs) eater 
doesn't want food that is kind of the stereotypical, you know, plant-based, vegan, vegetarian, boring, bland, brown, right? Yeah, with yeah. Tofu with brown sauce on it. So <laughs> I feel like, you know, the food, you know, I, I like to appeal to people's self-interest and, like, give people really flavorful, satisfying food. And the bonus is if you're getting it from the farmer's market or if you're growing it at home or if you're getting it from a local CSA, you know, you're supporting local farmers and you're helping to multiply your dollar in the local regional economy. And if they're growing it organically, you know, you're helping to sustain a healthy environment. And if you're eating, like, helpful food, you're helping to sustain your own personal health. So I, I like to follow with all those things and not start with the heavy politics and kind of um, heavy intellectual ideas because so often that pushes people away. But if you start with good food, people naturally want to know more about that stuff. So that's been my approach. Totally. Um, the pictures are gorgeous, too, and the, it's definitely mouth-watering. Um, <clears throat> okay, and I just have to give a shout-out to Jennifer Martinet, who's a um, food photographer that I partner with on this book, and we continue to work together. She's like my Ernest Dickerson and my Spike Lee. Um, mm-hmm. And Karen Cinto, who's like one of the most fabulous food stylists, did all the food styling on the book, and um, we're continuing to work on some new projects, so I just had to give them a shout-out. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so, it, you know, building flavor, it's definitely helpful for folks who are used to um, – these rich flavors, um, you know, getting getting all these intense flavors from just vegetables. If that's what you're used to and born with, you know, or not born with, but you re- you were you grew up with, um, you know, and say you're just switching to becoming a vegan. Um, but speaking of which, do you? I, I don't really know the stats. Do you think that there? Are, do you know if how many vegans there are? If that number happens to be growing in recent years. Uh, yes, it certainly is growing, and I uh, I just was looking at some statistics, but I don't know where they are. <laughs> I'll certainly share them with you um, in one second. But, you know, I feel like more than just people who are kind of wholesale converting to, um, you know, embracing veganism, and, and by the way, I, I reject that term for myself in terms of my own diet. I don't describe my my diet is a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, and I don't eat any animal products. My diet is completely devoid of any animal or animal-derived products. But so often what I've seen with people who, you know, are hoping to kind of like embrace a healthier diet, they'll reach for whatever they imagine is a panacea, whether it's a raw food diet or a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. And then, you know, I've seen this, this phenomenon where people, when they kind of like fall off the horse or if they start, you know, if they eat a little meat, then they just kind of throw their hands up and give up. Well, you know, I, I messed up, so I'm not a <laughs> vegan anymore. I'm not a vegetarian anymore. So I'm just going to go back and just eating a lot of meat. And so for me, I'm my... I do it for political reasons because I really want to encourage people rather than just kind of choosing whatever they might imagine as the best diet and then following the script accordingly. I want people to just, like, really consider what are my values, you know? Mm-hmm. like well, So if we're just talking about health, you know, if we're talking about embracing a diet for, like, you know, our overall health and well-being, I think... I don't necessarily think a vegan diet is the perfect diet for anyone. I don't mm-hmm. think any one diet is perfect for any individual throughout her or his life. Uh, what a 13-year-old boy needs nutritionally is radically different than what a 65-year-old woman needs. And so I think we have to consider, like, you know, our age, our bodily constitution, what the seasons are, like really eating in season, you know, um, 
what are our cultural food ways, what were our ancestors eating. And I think taking all those things into consideration, um, you know, really helps inform what should be the most helpful diet for us. But in terms of, like, you know, our values, I want people to really consider, how do I want animals to be treated, you know? Yeah. Do I want to see animals treated horribly and violently in our industrial food system? You know, what do I want our environment to look like? So really thinking about what, what our values are and letting that drive what we eat and not feeling like we need to put it in a box and name it. For people who are vegans for political reasons, I support it, I get it, that's cool. But mm-hmm. I think in terms of, like, people, you know, imagining that, oh, this is the newest, best diet and it's going to make me the healthiest or whatever, I just want people to let, let go of the titles and just eat the way that makes them feel good and that's most helpful for each individual. And how you feel, like, from season to season, um, in sickness and health and, and so forth. It's very individual, as you're saying. That's very true. Huh. Let, me, let me tell you something. I've seen some very unhealthy vegans. I've seen some <laughs> raw foodists who've been, like, trying to maintain a raw food diet in the dead of winter in Chicago. And I don't know if it's the healthiest thing. So <laughs> uh, I just want people to have a more complex, nuanced approach to the way that they eat. Gotcha. Well, um, we're just going to cut to a quick uh, little musical break, and we'll be right back with more questions from Brian Terry. I'm a flesh of my soak, and I'll rest till the ashes are rest and the seas coalesce. Well, you'll never be feeling, you can't be sure. Well, we'll all do our best that we have to attest all the things you will do, cause it wants to be in you. I thought you knew, but that cannot be overboard. Out from your eyes, you will see Mr. Fire, who knew you before, cause you are no grass-fed beef pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef free-range, sustainably produced humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the American West Okay, we're back on Let's Eat In with Brian Terry, author of the new E Inspired Vegan Seasonal Ingredients, Creative Recipes, Mouthwatering Menus. How are you? Doing great. All I right. found that statistic. Can I share okay. this with you? Yes, please. How many <laughs> vegans are, are there in the world? Well, so, you know, I think a lot of people are healthy or um, hesitant to embrace a strict vegan diet. And, sure. um, you know, but there are a lot, according to our study in 2011, there are a large number of people who are seeking to reduce their meat intake, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think is um, anecdotally, we've just been seeing more of this. And so it, the study found that 16% of Americans don't eat mish, meat, fish, seafood, or poultry in more than half of their meals. And 33% of Americans are eating vegan meals more often at home, as well as ordering vegan meals at restaurants. And so, you know, for me, understanding that the kind of public health crisis that Americans are on a whole are dealing with, 
um, that is directly related to what we eat. I think three out of four Americans suffer from chronic illnesses directly related to what they eat every year. And so understanding this and understanding the um, the, the deepest impact that it's having on a lot of communities of color, African-American, Latino, Native American communities, my goal is to help, you know, really address this public health crisis and help people eat more wholesome fresh foods and abandon a lot of the processed, packaged, crappy food that Americans are eating, you know, far too often. And so... I see vegan diets as simply a tool, you know, or at least plant-based um, diets or, you know, vegan diets can be a tool for helping to um, ameliorate a lot of symptoms from chronic illnesses or, you know, to help heal many chronic illnesses in some cases. And so, you know, more mainstream medical institutions. I'm not talking about the hippies out here in Berkeley and <laughs> Oakland and San Francisco. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I a know. lot of mainstream medical institutions are saying that a low-fat vegan diet can actually be a helpful diet for helping to heal chronic illnesses and, and help prevent many um, chronic illnesses um, in that case. So, you know, I think people should just try to eat more plant-based foods. If they make this choice to eat meat products, that's fine. That's each and everyone's individual choice. It's not my place to say how anyone should eat because people have to live with the decision they make. I simply want to help give people the most information so that they can make the most informed decision given that the decisions about food that people are making are heavily influenced by the industries that are, you know, trying to make us eat the worst food. So, Well, thanks for bringing the scope of all the, inf- uh, like, you know, vegan recipes that are out there because um, these ones are really cool. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so what is um okay? What's your ultimate? And maybe it's in this book somewhere. But what would you say is the ultimate uh, food for a date? Wow, that's interesting. Well, you know, you actually mentioned the um, <laughs> the, the South Asian um, supper menu that I had. Um, oh, I had yeah. in the okay. latest book, and that book was actually inspired by um, uh, I was kind of doing some research on aphrodisiacs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And so um, a lot of the, um, the the foods that have been kind of found to be, um, to, to help, I don't know, excite people's libidos, I um, decided to include them in a curry, and then mm-hmm. from there kind of built the meal around that. And so um, oh, check, yeah, out the, asparagus. check out the Inspired Vegan, check out the South Asian Supper menu, and um, I definitely think that will help to... Um, Keep things up in the kitchen and beyond. <laughs> I'm going to try it really soon. That, the asparagus <laughs> is almost in season now, and that asparagus and sweet potato curry uh, sound, sounds awesome. There I've never you done go. that before. Yeah. And don't forget the cardamom saffron sweet lassi with candy cashews. I love like cardamom. Yeah. Perfect way to end a meal. <laughs> Excellent. So what are you working on next? What Do you have um, ideas for cookbook? Or is it in the works or maybe? Um... I have, yeah, I have something in the works. Um, my agent and I are cooking up something um, and it's kind of under wraps, but it's <laughs> going to be exciting. <laughs> and um, I'll probably be um, tweeting about it um, sometime in the summer once we um, close the deal. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Bryant Terry. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not tweeting as much lately, but um, I'm certainly, you know, in the Twitter sphere. And I'm really excited about my recent, my upcoming trip to New York. You know, with my daughter, I've just been made a conscious decision not to travel as much mm-hmm. <laughs> because um, I just want to spend as much time with her as possible before she goes to preschool. But I um, am doing a two week trip to New York with my family, and I think I have like seven events lined up. So I'm really excited to come back to the city because I lived in Brooklyn for nine yeah. years. 
music up to Brooklyn and, um, you know, just kind of hanging out with folks as well as promoting the book. Well, well can't wait for um, some of those events. Do you think um, it'll be much changed since you were last year? <laughs> Uh, let me tell you, I heard that the um, Fort Greene that I was living in back in um, <laughs> 2005 <laughs> looks a lot different in 2012. So <laughs> they have such a great farmers market, and now there's a you know a food co-op. Oh, actually, I, I don't know if it's uh, it's um, if it got off the ground yet, but um, yeah, yeah, you know that neighborhood is is definitely um, a great spot for food now. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got to go back to my old stomping ground. I mean, I used to be a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op, so mm-hmm. it's like you know, that was kind of like my saving grace when living in Brooklyn. But, of course, the Fort Greene Farmer's Market was happening. The, the um, Clinton Hill CSA, which I was a big part of kind of like the origins of that. I was a community food educator, you know, taking a lot of the ingredients from the week's um, share and then doing like cooking demonstration and giving recipes to members to take home. So, you know. Oakland is like my spiritual home, but like Brook, well, my kind of like <laughs> I always say, um, Memphis raised me, Brooklyn mm-hmm. made me, and yeah. Oakland saved me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And this is you know something I've been wondering because um, I've been traveling here and there quite a lot, and when possible, I try to cook. But um, how do you say you're you know just constantly on the road a lot? How would you? eat well because <laughs> i know you travel like tons <clears throat> do you have any yeah. tricks secrets wow um you know the, the thing is i feel like more like we'll take care of you in brooklyn but you know <laughs> yeah like in the middle of like the heartland sometimes it gets a little tough but you know i feel like the thing about um i'm surprised i have to say i am so surprised that i'll be like in the middle of this landlocked in the middle of nowhere in Iowa somewhere. And there just seems to always be, like, a community of folks who really care about these issues and who are doing work to, um, you know, help build local food systems, whether it's, like, starting a, a farmer's market. And it might not be at the size of whatever, mm-hmm. the uh, Grand Army Plaza farmer's market, but folks are certainly, um, you know, doing some cool stuff around the country. And I feel like the movement is just, it, it's growing. In some places, uh, slower than others, but... Typically, I feel like I can go somewhere, and if I give people a little advance notice, they, they're, they're able to round up some foods that will be satisfying for me. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's not the case, but most often it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, like you said, there's no, like, absolute strict diets, you know, that, that you got to adhere to. So when in Rome, I guess. You got to be flexible sometimes. Let me tell you, if you're um, <clears throat> too strict, you might starve traveling sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think? Okay, one last question. This is kind of maybe a big question, but what do you think about raising kids as vegetarian or vegan? Wow, that's such an interesting question because um, I, well, I'm just, you know, from our experience, we're just constantly kind of figuring out how we want to raise our daughter. And yeah. for us, we certainly, one of the emphasis, as I said earlier, is introducing her to a diverse array of ingredients that reflect her cultural food ways. Yeah. So whether they're foods from the African diaspora or foods, you know, from the Asian diaspora, particularly Chinese food. And, um, you know, we, my wife is pretty much an omnivore. And mm-hmm. so I um, don't think it's my place 
to be kind of making these unilateral decisions about yeah. what my daughter's diet is going to be. So we're meeting somewhere in the middle. I mean, we don't feed her any dairy products because um, most African Americans and Asians are actually lactose intolerant. So there's a high likelihood, given that she's mixed African American and Asian, that she's probably going to be lactose intolerant. <clears throat> you know, in terms of like meat products, animal products, she she's one, and so we just started introducing fish to her. She loves okay. it, you know what I mean? Okay. And it's just like, I think it's going to be a constant process of just kind yeah. of like seeing what works, um, you know, and, and, and in terms of my our, our approach to feeding her, I think this should be people's approach to feeding themselves, however, the, however old they are. If they're like seven years old, I think diet needs to constantly be revisited and that might need to shift. It might be perfect for you to have like a really kind of beef-centered diet for 20 years, but then it might make sense for you to kind of like scale back on the beat or cut it out wholesale and then just see how that works for another five years. So I think for us it's really about this, you know, trial and error, seeing what works for her and then just kind of like feeding her accordingly. Gotcha. Well, I think she's going to be a a well-rounded eater thanks to all these wonderful foods that you guys have. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I sucks that um there's not that much time for um i could go on and on asking more and more questions (laughs) to bug you but that's about all the time we have for today can i give a quick rundown of my new york city event yes please okay cool so on saturday may um 5th i'm actually going to be or i think it's a fourth no fifth i'm going to whatever day it is that saturday that the new york city food and book fair is happening in williamsburg i'm going to be presenting on a um, panel for that May 10th, I'm doing a reading at Greenlight Bookstore in Fort Greene. May 12th, I'm going to be um, keynoting the Brooklyn Food Conference. And then I'm also doing a reading at um, Blue Stockings uh, on the Lower East Side at some point. So you can find out where all my events um, are taking place in New York City and beyond on my website, www.bryant-terry.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-T-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Can't wait for those events. I'm sure a lot of us will be out there to see um, the book fair and also the food conference. So yeah. awesome. Cool. cool. Well, well, thanks thank you again. so much for having me on, Kathy. Well, thanks so much great. for your time. And we'll see you next week on Let's Eat In. Thanks to everyone at Heritage. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. You know I'm